So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet this morning, we do welcome you and with our congregation turn with me to begin with to Matthew chapter 1 and then we're going to Hebrews chapter series of messages that has been entitled The Cradle and the Cross, and this morning we're looking at the final segment of that, or we will begin the final segment, Salvation from Our Sins. Verse 21 of Matthew 1, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We don't have salvation without a Savior. And Jesus as the Savior. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read four verses, but primarily want to focus on verse 3. Therefore, verse 1, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. We'll speak to that in the message this morning. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. May God bless the reading of his blessed word in our hearing this morning and let's go to him again in prayer. Father, we are an ignorant people, so what we don't know, we pray that by the Spirit of God you would teach us. We are sinful people, so we pray and ask for forgiveness of our sins through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're needy people, so we do pray this morning, Father, that you would make us like Jesus, in whom our needs are met. In his name we pray, amen. A few weeks ago, we started to look at the cradle and the cross, and we examined the need for forgiveness of our sins. And then we looked at the need for satisfaction from our sins. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the need for a substitute for our sins. And so this morning, we're going to begin to bring all this together in the need for salvation from our sins. No forgiveness, no satisfaction, no substitution without salvation. A few weeks ago, a few days ago now, we, uh, our family came together and we were playing a, a series of games. Some of you do this as a family and we also uh, uh, do it from time to time. And one of the games that we played it was called debate. And so in this game, one of you picks, uh, there are two, two uh, subjects, and one of you picks the, the pros and cons of one subject, and the other picks the pros and cons of another subject. So Wyatt and I were assigned to debate over whether the pen was mightier 
than the sword. What do you think? And you don't have to answer. Multitasking this morning. That's not a good thing for a man. Yeah. Men cannot multitask. All God's women said, we are not made to do that. God did not make us. He made us to be focused. All God's men said, amen. Yeah, remember that. Okay. Paul Tripp, in his weekly email, said this uh, this past week. God designed people with a need for counsel. That basically means none of us are lone wolves. Mike was teaching about fellowship this morning, and we we need that fellowship. Immediately after creating Adam and Eve, God begins to talk to them. He knows they need truth, which they will never discover on their own in order to make the proper sense of who they are. Do you know who you are this morning? And what they were created to do. Do you know why God placed you on earth. And God gave us his word so that we would know him and so that we would know ourselves, so that we would know the nature of the world, our world, and then how to live. There's a proper way to live, and it's God's way. Now, in John's gospel, we're told, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, it's important for you and I to remember, those of you this morning that are born again, it's important to remember that we are not a visual people. The Scripture teaches us that the Jews seek signs. They want something visual. Believers are not a visual people. None of us here born again have ever seen the resurrected Christ. comes back to what was said here by the author of the book of Hebrews in the last part of verse 3. It says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it. So this kind of, uh, we're not going to debate who wrote the book of uh, Hebrews this morning, but it kind of deals a death nail to Paul because Paul was one of the first ones to receive the gospel. And so the author here says it was confirmed to us. This is second-hand information, not first-hand. So Paul cannot be the author. He was a first-hand recipient. Now, who the author is, only the Spirit of God knows because he's the Spirit. But primarily, what this author is saying is that the Word convinced individuals that Jesus was the Lord, is the Lord. We are not a visual people. We are to be a hearing people, and this is the type of people that God had created Israel to be. The Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, hear, not see, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, 
you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you this day, which I uh, command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach the words to your children. You shall talk of the words when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. So from the Shema, and Jesus would quote this several times in the New Testament in the Gospels, we learn that being a hearing people is something that's done every day, not just done on the Lord's Day. We'd hear the words. Next slide, if you would. God communicated who he is through words. I've heard people say before, don't get wrapped up in words, just, just, just preach. Well, you have to use words to preach. So God demonstrated and revealed himself to us through words. Oz Guinness said God created the world through a word. And God reveals himself in words. Now our age is a visual one. And words play second fiddle to images, to photos. How many photos do you have on your phone? I've got over a thousand. And I don't load them to the cloud because it'll cause the cloud to rain. So I don't do that. But we're vi- we look for images, we look for photos, we look for graphics, we like charts. Those of us that read charts, and we like icons. And then the question, and this has been part of uh, uh, an understanding for many, many years. So ask yourself the question, is a picture worth a thousand words? Well, the interesting thing is, according to the Word of God, no. The words are more important than the picture. Guinness goes on to say, and this is a great quote, in the babble of our media, the babble of our media, words have been hyped, they've been worn out, they've been left threadbare. The result is a generation of ever-offendables, hypersensitive to microaggressions, and trigger words and a steady erosion of freedom of speech through speech codes and political correctness. Does that make sense to you? I think it does. The babble of our media. 
the Word. Stephanie taught on the ten words in a lady's Bible study. The Word of the law of God in Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You're not to look to see me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is under the water. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, some translations say, or worship them. No images, no photos, no graphics, no coloring books. All images, all icons, all statues, all paintings are idolatrous because they reduce God to the level of other gods and nature. Several years ago, Robbie and I had the opportunity to be to tour the Vatican in Rome. There are no paintings in the Vatican. There are no statues, or the statues that are in the Vatican are in the alcoves. They are not in the main assembly area. The only thing that is permitted in the Vatican are mosaics. And the reason that mosaics were, per were permitted was because it took a congregation of people generally to put these together and not one person. They did this because they feared idolatry. Now, go off on a tangent talking about the Vatican, and I'm not going to do that this morning. But I want you to understand God made it clear, made a clear definition to Israel. You will not see me. You will hear me. Next slide. God is spirit. Jesus himself said this. That's not a problem for him. He's always been spirit. But it's a huge problem for us. We can't see the spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, the spirit moves where it wills. It's like the wind. It's like water. You don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going to. That's spirit. We don't communicate with God the same way we communicate with each other. We communicate with words. Sometimes we do take pictures and we send them off. But generally, if you attach them to your text, you'll say something about the picture when you send it. So there are words that are there. So how do we relate to a God that is spirit, who is utterly, as the book of Isaiah says, other than you and I. He is unlike us. So there's this huge communication gap. 
And how did God choose to bridge the communication gap? The Bible that you hold in your hands, the Bible that rests in your pews, the Bible that may populate your coffee tables at home, he chose to communicate to us in words. And it is not until, if you're listening, say amen. amen. We talk a great deal about prayer, and we should, but understand this. It is not until we respond to his words that we can lift our words, our prayers to him. Remember, even the pagans pray. Even the pagans love their family. Even the pagans take care of their families. This is not uniquely Christian. So when he speaks to us, our hearts are prepared to speak to him. And I would pray, if I had a prayer for you this, this coming year in 2023, uh, and for me, I would ask that the Lord not improve my prayer life, but make it a part of my everyday walk with him and that I move beyond praying for myself, praying for my family, and praying for the ill and affirmed. There's much, much more to prayer than focusing on a world that is populated with maybe a dozen or more people. Paul wrote to the church at Rome about prayer, and he said this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, and that's the reason I made that statement. We don't know what we should pray for. But obviously, we're to pray for more than self, family, and the ill and the firm. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So, yes, God is invisible. We can't see him. But he's not inaudible. He can be heard. And he speaks through his revelation. Jesus himself said, quoting the Rabbi Gamaliel, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He didn't say he that has eyes to see, let him see. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. It's much, much harder to hear than it is to see. Now the words we're told made the universe. If there are no, were no words, if God chose some other method to communicate, if there were no words, there would be no worlds. The words created mankind in God's image. Let us make man in our image. Words, important words, without which 
none of us would be here. His word, John says, became incarnate so that we might not only hear, but so that we would see the Jesus that came to save. For a short period of time, in all of eternity, God was incarnate in the flesh for about 33 years or so, and people saw it. An extremely, extremely brief period of time. We see him now through the eyes of faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Next slide, brother. John would go on to say, and the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. <coughs> The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Scripture stresses the importance of positive words. Yes, there are a lot of negative words in the Bible. A lot of negative words in other books, are there not? Yes. Scripture stresses the importance of positive words. It, it stresses to us the importance of the words as truth. That's a positive thing. Now, truth is always difficult to swallow, but that's still a positive thing. Scripture stresses to us words that define. We're going to look at some of those this morning. I began to look at some of those this morning. And the Scripture stresses beautiful words. A word fitly spoken, the proverb says, is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. Wow. Not a, not a painting. Not a photo. Not an image. Word. Matthew one twenty one we've read and we've read that um, every Sunday morning in this series of messages. God gave to us in his mercy and his holy love his son, Jesus, who is the Savior. And in order for us to be forgiven, in order for God to be satisfied, in order for you and I to have our pain removed, there must be a substitute before there's any salvation. Now, Hebrews 2, we see here, it declares that we neglect such a salvation at our own peril. Look back, if you would, at uh, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. One of the great themes of the book of Hebrews is the falling away. 
the drifting away, the do-nothingness that sometimes inhabits our supposed Christian lives. And then thinking that when we call on God, he is at our disposal at all times, even though we have drifted away. There is a danger. We've just come through 2022. Some of you have made New Year's resolutions. <clears throat> In making those resolutions, you say, what you're saying is, I'm going to try to do better this coming year in this area. And perhaps one of them is reading the Word of God. I certainly trust that it is. Or praying, or whatever. But one of the things that we need to remember is that when we neglect the words that reveal him, it begins out, life begins to erode. It's a slow erosion in most cases, but it's an erosion nonetheless. Now, here's the thing. God is no less essential or inescapable when he is rejected as when he is believed. And all it takes is a drifting away. The author of the book of Hebrews is summarizing chapter 1 where we get this beautiful litany about Jesus Christ being the monogenes, the only begotten of God. And so what he's doing in chapter 2 is he's saying, listen, all of this Old Testament thing, and you can read this in verse 7, he begins to talk about it in chapter 1, and he brings it all the way down to chapter 2. But what he's saying uh, in capsule form is basically this. If you think that now that you live under the new covenant, and you claim to be born again, if you think that, if you drift away, there will be less punishment for you now under the new covenant than there was under the old covenant, he says, you make a mistake. Now, obviously, he's speaking to those that profess Christ and don't possess him, and a good deal of the book has to do with that. We cannot neglect the words that teach us about salvation and then have the motivation to pray with fervency to a God that loves us in spite of who we are. We need that correction. We need that conviction. For we easily, easily forget. So remember, God is no less essential. He is no less inescapable. When he is rejected... 
as when he has believed. He's still God. We have not changed his nature in the least, though we may reject him, though we may neglect him, though we may drift away, though we may depart. God is essential and inescapable. This is the God we serve. What a God. Same God in 2022 as in 2023. The same God. Forgiveness. Satisfaction. Substitution. Lead to salvation. No salvation, no forgiveness. No salvation, no satisfaction. No salvation, no substitution. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the grand work that cost God his life for those that he loved. Next slide. There are four principles, and we obviously are not going to cover all of these this morning. Some of these we've covered before, and you say, oh, here we go again. God help you if you say that, because these are important. And we're not going to cover them in a great bit of detail, because obviously propitiation, justification, we covered quite a bit when we were in the book of Romans. But these are essential words. They're four principles. They are words. This is the way God communicates to us that highlight a different aspect of the sinner's need for salvation from sins. Now, so you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm a saved sinner. Do I need to hear this? The answer is you preach the gospel to yourself every day. Absolutely. I need to hear this. I need to be reminded of these four great words. And so propitiation will define these, and because God wants them defined, and he wants us to understand them. Propitiation underscores the wrath of God upon sinners. Our redemption displays our captivity to sin. Justification, our legal guilt before God. And then reconciliation, which we broached a couple of weeks ago and Probably next week or in a week or two, we'll look at this again. Our enmity against God and our alienation from him. Now, here's the takeaway. Look at that bottom sentence there. These principles don't flatter us. The fact that we need our sins to be propitiated, we need to be redeemed, we need to be justified, we need to be reconciled. They don't flatter us. They paint us in a poor light. This is the nature of our sin. They expose the magnitude of our need. They expose the fact that only God can meet the magnitude of our need. The Gabriel did not announce to Joseph, you will be able to, through science, Find a Savior. 
The angel did not announce to Joseph, you will be able through technology to find a Savior. He didn't announce, you will be able through education to find a Savior. He did not announce, you will be able through your vocation to find a Savior, or your family to find a Savior, or politics to find a Savior, or wealth to find a Savior. He said, the Savior is my Son, Jesus the Christ. That word, Jesus, means I have met your substantial need. And all four of these words, propitiation, redemption, justification, reconciliation. This is what it means to be saved. Well, I'm saved from my sins. Yeah, through propitiation, through redemption, through justification, through reconciliation. That's what it means to be saved from your sins. And God revealed this to us so that we may praise and glorify Him. For the magnitude was so great that only the Messiah could bring it about. God's saving initiative. And God always takes the initiative, not you and I. God takes the initiative. Our parents or grandparents may have brought us to church. Someone exposed us to the gospel, but it was God that made the initiative. that took the initiative. You can come to church all you want and not be saved. The saving initiative in his love because he satisfied the only one that required satisfaction himself. Preached about that several weeks ago. So with the time remaining this morning, I was hoping to get through two. I will probably only get through the one, propitiation. Some of these we'll quote. There'll be uh, quotes from Scripture. So, in propitiation, God propitiated his own wrath against sin. We'll define this in just a moment. God was angry with sinners. God took the initiative to pay what we could not pay. 1 John 4 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Next slide, if you would. Secondly, redemption. God redeemed us from our miserable bondage to sin. And man, all you have to do is look at the world. The miserable bondage we have to our own sin. Zacharias, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel appeared to him and told him he was going to have a son, he would be the one that would, uh, would make straight the highways through the deserts and the mountains. And Zacharias said, how can this be? Well, I'm old. My wife is old. 
And what did the angel do? He struck Zacharias dumb so that he couldn't talk. And then when Jesus was born, when John the Baptist was born and he saw the revelation of God in his own son and in God the Son, he began to speak. In chapter 1, verse 68, he says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, redemption is always at a cost. It's not free. Third one is justification. God declares us righteous in his sight because of God the Son. And we're not saved without this. We're not saved through propitiation, through redemption, through reconciliation. Justification is required. Romans 8.33 says, It is God who justifies. Book of Galatians speaks to that. Book of Hebrews speaks to that. And fourth, reconciliation. God in Christ reconciled us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. These four words teach us that God's salvation, and it's always God's, it's not my salvation. I'm saved because God took the initiative to save me. God's salvation was achieved through the blood shedding. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago, through the violent extermination of the life of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus satisfied, and through this, he substituted himself as a sacrifice in our place. That's why we're saved. We're not saved because Jesus was in a cradle. We're saved because the entirety of his life, from the time he was born, he set his eyes in Luke chapter 9 to go to Jerusalem and be lifted between heaven and earth so that you and I might have opportunity to be born again. In propitiation, Romans 3.25, it says God presented him as a propitiatory sacrifice through faith in his blood. In redemption, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Bloodshedding. The ending of his life in a violent means. Next slide. Justification, Romans 5 tells us we now have been justified by his blood. And reconciliation, Ephesians 2 again, you who are far off have been brought near reconciled through the blood of Christ. No salvation, no forgiveness, no satisfaction, no substitution without the shedding of blood. And so when you run across someone, perhaps in your family or your neighbors or those that you work with, and they say, I, I, you know, I just can't come to grips with the bloody salvation, you can't be saved. The Bible is very clear. This is what God the Father required this is what God the Son achieved. 
Christ's blood is a symbol of life that was violently, his life violently ended. All sacrifices, their lives were taken from them in violent means. The slitting of throats, the reaching back of the head, the pouring of the blood. It is also plain that he died in our place as a substitute to satisfy the Father so that our sins might be forgiven. Without that, no forgiveness. When we come and we ask for forgiveness of our sins, what happens so often? We just do it in a, in a haphazard, sometimes in a very superficial way. Lord, forgive me of my sins, forgetting that. It's another way we take the Lord's name in vain. Forgetting that it required Christ's blood to forgive us our sin. Jesus' death atoned for sins and atonement. Atonement, redemption, very similar. Causing God to avert his wrath from sinners. Christ's blood was the ransom. There was a payment, a ransom that secured redemption. The condemnation of the innocent, Christ, that the guilty, Ernie Carey, might be justified. He was made sin for me. And in some miraculous way made sin for the sins of the world. So these four terms, these four words, these four words, propitiation, redemption, justification, reconciliation, define God's work of salvation from sins. And these words are inextricably linked. They're bound together. As we learned a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as God is in Christ. So he revealed himself in our salvation through these words. We're going to examine them in order. Take just a moment. We'll start to look at propitiation. I won't finish, but I want to cover this this morning. Next slide. So what does it mean to propitiate? It's an, it's, it's an ancient term. You don't see it quite that much today, but it's found a number of times, obviously, in the Bible. We've seen several places that it's found. <clears throat> One of the best definitions that I've come across, again by Wayne Grudem, it's the sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns his wrath into favor. So one of the things that we learn about Jesus propitiating the wrath of his Father causing his father to avert the wrath from me and placing it squarely on his son as God is in Christ. One of the things that we learn from this is that we now have opportunity to be in God's favor. We didn't have that before. You remember what Cain told the Lord after he had killed his brother Abel? And the Lord came and spoke to him. He didn't see the Lord. He spoke to him. 
And there he said, you're going to be a wanderer, a vagabond for the remainder of your days. What did Cain say? My punishment is greater than I can bear. That was a lie. No. What Cain rejected, we find this in the New Testament, what Cain rejected was God gave him opportunity to repent and avert God's wrath through favor. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How will we escape if we do not take God's substitute in Christ to pay for our sins? How shall his wrath be averted? It won't. It will not. Propitiation is necessary. There are three details for propitiation. It's necessary because our sin arouses the wrath of God. Now, we, we don't think that, but it does. And we need to, for 2023, we, we need to begin to think that way. We're looking at the sins of others. We're looking at the sins in Washington. God knows there are, num- there are a lot of them. There's a lot of sin right here in good old Lynchburg, Virginia. There's a lot of sin right here in good old Flat Creek Baptist Church. That's just the nature of human beings. A lot of sin in me. And the propitiation of my sin was necessary because I had aroused the wrath of God. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God's anger is not capricious. It's not arbitrary. It's not unpredictable. In fact, God's anger is very predictable. The soul that sins, it shall die. That's predictable. In this highly predictable God, we know that the evil of our sin provokes him to vindicate his holy name. And being who he is, the nature of God is such that he will vindicate his holy name. He lets nothing slide because he's God. He's not grading on the curve. He's not saying all you need is a little help. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Eat a better, better, have a better diet. Exercise more. Do all these things and then I'll accept you. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? What would be the level of eating correctly? As I look about this congregation this morning, I bet every single one of you, even those that take, that have good dietary practices, I bet you ate pieces of pie and cake and biscuits. Biscuits are much better than pie and cake. I bet you did eat, well, they, they were sugar-free, preacher. What does that mean? 
That just means they were not as sweet, not as good. That's all that means. And I know some of you can. What is the level we can't achieve? We'll never be able to achieve a level that is arbitrary. And I'm glad that we can. Who makes this propitiation? We learn in the Old Testament, and we learn through studying some of the books in the New Testament, the pagans seek to avert their deity's anger either by performance of rituals. Do we do that? Yeah, we do. Another word for that is superstition. Adherence to some codex, to some law, or by sacrifices. But the gospel asserts that there is nothing, nothing. How shall we escape? We won't, because there's nothing sinners can do, say, offer, or contribute that will compensate for our sins. There's nothing we can do that turns away his anger. We can't conjole, cajole, we can't bribe, we can't persuade God to forgive because we deserve nothing but judgment. The triune God took the initiative himself in sheer mercy and grace. God's great holy love is a source. That's where our salvation begins. That's the source. It's not the consequence of atoning for our sins. It's where the atonement begins. In P.T. Forsyth, we quoted, quoted from him a number of times over the past few weeks, the atonement did not procure grace. The atonement flowed from grace. Next slide. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. God's wrath needed to be averted, and God's love did the propitiation in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. God's wrath hasn't changed. It's changed against us. We'll see, uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But the wrath is still there. God doesn't lose attributes. He doesn't love less today than he loved yesterday. His wrath is not less today than it was yesterday. Christ propitiating the Father's wrath did not change his wrath into love. It didn't change our enmity to him into grace. Love and grace proceeded to afford our salvation, and it changed his dealing with us. What changed? Jesus made the change. Forsyth goes on to write, The distinction I ask you to observe is between a change of feeling and a change of treatment. God's feelings toward us never needed to be changed. God's treatment of us, God's practical relation to us, that had to be changed. And thankfully, he forgave us and welcomed us home. Good words, truthful words, 
defined words. And what propitiated our sins? Neither animal, nor vegetable, nor mineral, but Christ offered in himself. And here's the takeaway. God is always the answer to any question about propitiation. His holy wrath required propitiation. God's holy, and that's the remarkable difference between our love and his love. God's holy, steadfast love undertook to do the propitiation. And God in Christ died for the propitiation of our sin. Christ averted the inescapable judgment of God toward lost sinners so that we might receive Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, which is mightier, the Word or the Sword. How shall we escape if we drift away from such a great salvation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ. Lord, we've only, if that, Father, we've only touched the hem of your garment in making this real to your people. We pray that they receive it in the love that is in spoken. And so we pray that over these next few minutes, there are perhaps those that are unsaved that need to receive you as Savior. We pray that uh, you would grant that this day by the power of the Spirit of God so that they too could have your wrath averted. We pray for believers this morning. We thank you that part of our salvation is that Jesus took your wrath so that we might be born again. We sang this morning, O oh, four thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. The glories of our God and King, triumphs of his grace. What, what a marvelous stanza. And so we close this morning thanking you for the triumphs of your grace, of your mercy, your holy love. We pray that you have your sweet will, your divine way, the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>
That's even better news. And that person, of course, is Jesus the Savior. So as we stand and sing here in just a moment, we'll give you an opportunity to make your way out of the pew. We can't save you. We can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. You can receive him as Savior and be born again. If you're here today and the Lord's leading you into the fellowship of this church, perhaps you know the Lord is Savior and you need to follow him in believer's baptism or transfer of a, a letter from a church of like faith or statement of faith. We encourage you also doing the singing to make that known to this body of believers and as a child of God. Make a commitment. Resolution's poor. So let's just make a commitment that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Think about these things as the Shema says. When you rise, when you lay down, when you go about your daily work, pray that the Spirit of God would just make you sensitive 